All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our second session of Life After Life. Um, it is great to see you all. From the comfort and safety of your space, sorry, you are from the comfort and safety of my space to the comfort and safety of your space, it is great to see you this fine evening. Okay, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about. So this course is all about life after life and the subtitle of this course, as I created, as I designed it, is the question, what happens next? Which is a good question. And it's a question that many people wonder, as we discussed last week. Many of us ask, we wonder, and it's good to have some, some Jewish wisdom on the matter. So, just letting some more people in. So tonight we're going to we're going to um, explore an area of the life after life experience that I think is very misunderstood. When I say misunderstood, I need to clarify. So let me let me qualify and clarify that. What I mean is it's very misunderstood what the Jewish perspective is. I think other perspectives on heaven and hell are very well known and articulated. I think there's a very good PR campaign out there um, for some other belief system as to what hell is and what heaven is and how you get to heaven and what all the things that you could do or possibly do to end up in hell instead of heaven. I think that's very well documented and very well. Again, the PR, the PR machine is, um, is very, very strong with that. So there's definitely a lot of information out there, but I think with regards to this, the very unique Jewish perspective on heaven and hell, it's very, uh, very not well known. And I think it's very important to talk about it because it's really, really powerful. And you'll see tonight. I think it's powerful. I think it's uplifting. I think it's deep, but like all the classes, I'll let you be the judge. That's what we're going to do tonight. Okay, so I want to begin with a story. Always a story, never revealing it as a joke until the punchline. Jerry, I saw you get your, uh, get your um, what do they call it? The, uh, the rim shot ready. Okay. Oh, awesome. Good. All right. Not yet. Not yet. Don't forget to unmute yourself so we can hear it. So a Jewish couple decides one day they are going to make a major change in their lives. Uh, the wife is driving the change. She says, you know what? She tells her husband one day, that's it. We're going healthy. We're going healthy. We're eating healthy. We're going to exercise. That's it. So no more red meat. No more late night snacks. No more soda. No more ice cream. No more deep fried chicken. That's it. Only seaweed and steamed tofu and organic spelt bread with carrot juice and avocado toast. Maybe not the toast. Avocado toast without the toast because who needs the carbs? Whatever it is. That's it. Daily classes of yoga, Pilates, massage therapy. They're running the marathon, Boston Marathon. It's the whole nine yards. They're like fully decked out in the healthy lifestyle. And they live many years. They have a long life. But, you know, everyone's got, got their time. No one's ever lived forever. Hasn't happened yet. Uh, at least on this earth, right? So with, the, with a physical body. So look. Their time comes, and they happen to go together. Whatever. Detail's not important. They go together, 
And now they cross over to the other side. And they've lived a good life, not only physically, but also spiritually. And they go straight up to heaven. They get the express elevator straight up to heaven. And there they are. And it's amazing. Symphonies they're experiencing. Ballet performances, champagne waterfalls, angels floating. It's unbelievable. Ice carvings with angels, with real angels doing the ice carving. Who knows? And that's it. They're mesmerized. Like, this is amazing. The husband says to the he turns to the wife and says, You know, if not for your crazy diet, we would have been here 30 years ago. Anyway, Jerry. There you go. All right. Uh, okay, fine, good. So um, next, the rabbi, thank you, thank you. Rabbi um, is, ta- is saying a sermon, get, delivering a sermon, and he's making it interactive. One uh, high holiday, maybe it was Yom Kippur, and he starts talking about, you know, the ultimate reward and punishment of our deeds and our actions here on earth. And he points out to a woman, an elderly woman sitting in the crowd in the congregation. He says to her, Mrs. Cohen, you need to start thinking about the hereafter. She says to him, I'm always thinking about the hereafter. Every time I walk into a room, I ask myself, so what am I hereafter? Come on. No, what? (laughs) All right, tough crowd. Tough crowd, even on a virtual setting, a virtual context, it's a tough crowd. Listen, I feel at home, right? I feel at home. Being, you know, not necessarily getting the, uh, the, um, whatever, the laugh. But, especially because everyone's muted. Here we go. Let's jump in. Like I said before, tonight's, last week, we spoke about the transition of the soul. We spoke about death being the separation of soul from body. The soul is the true life. Body is just a container or a spacesuit. Something being animated by the life of the soul, when body and soul separate, which is the definition of death, when body and soul separate, so the soul continues to live, like the electricity in your home, you unplug an appliance, the electricity doesn't go anywhere, the appliance may stop humming, but the electricity is still there. The same thing is true with the body and the soul, the body stops functioning, the body goes its way, the soul keeps on ticking, of course, in a different form without that spacesuit. So it's less of an end of life, as it is a transition of life from one state of reality to a new state of reality. We spoke about the journey, how although death is the separation, but the separation is marked by various gradations, various stages, by which the soul slowly, slowly, slowly pulls away further and further from the body. It begins to disassociate from the needs, desires, pleasures, experiences of the body, and it begins to embrace its pure soul quality. And with that, the pain for the soul itself gradually lessens. The pain in the beginning is more difficult, especially if a person lived uh, more of a body-centric lifestyle, more focused on on the body's needs than perhaps the soul's needs, so the soul finds it more difficult or more of a painful transition. To move away from, uh, to move away from from the body. Nonetheless, every soul does gradually move away from the body. So today, having understood that, having explored that last week, today we look at the next stage in our conversation, which is fine. The soul is separated from the body. 
It's, uh, it's, it's moving, moving, moving on. But now where does it go? What actually happens to the soul after that? What happens? Where does it go? What does it experience wherever it goes? Right? So what's the destination of the soul? How does it get there? Um, what's it like over there? What's the deal with heaven and hell? Do, does Judaism believe in heaven and hell? And if so, what does it look like? What does it feel like? What is it like? So once again, we're going to debunk some misconceptions, at least again from the Jewish perspective, some other ideas out there about heaven and hell. We're going to, to explore a uniquely Jewish take on it. And, uh, and hopefully you will find this to be meaningful and inspiring once again. Like I said last week, this is, of course, a very sensitive topic. It's a real topic. It's not a theoretical topic. It's a sensitive topic. It's a real topic. So I ask that, of course, all of our conversations, um, aside from my terrible opening jokes, aside from that, be, of course, with the proper respect for the insensitivity for the, the, the topic at hand. So I want to begin by jumping right into the discussion about heaven and hell. So, and, and feel free to unmute yourself. I'd like to have a bit of a discussion here. Um, okay, so question number one, how do you imagine heaven and hell? How do you imagine heaven and hell? It's an open question. Anybody, please jump in. You don't need to buzz in, just unmute yourself. No buzzer. It's not a game show. Jump in. How do you imagine heaven and hell? Well, um, heaven, we learn that um, the soul, I guess, suffers for like 11 months in purgatory. That's heaven or hell? Hell. I mean, it's like purgatory. It's sort of between heaven and hell, but the soul suffers for like 11 months in purgatory. Okay, okay, so we have suffering, the soul is suffering. What else? What else do you think or do you know about heaven and hell? Let's get, let's get uh, what you've heard, what's out there. Anyone else? Feel free to jump in. Don't forget to unmute yourself. Irena. Hold on, Irena, we can't hear you. No. There we go, we got you. Okay, so I don't know if I heard or I'm imagined or what, but I am thinking of heaven as um, just reuniting with loved ones. Okay, so heaven is reuniting with loved ones and hell would be with the relatives that you don't want to see. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We love all the mishpacha. Everyone's, everyone's welcome. Right? There are cousins that are once removed and cousins that we're working on removing. <laughs> all right. Um, what, what else? What, good, good. Okay. I would, say, I would say that it is, heaven would be, you are in the perpetual presence of the divine. Okay, and good. And would be that you are in the perpetual separation from the divine. Good. Okay, so connection or separation. Good. I like, I like the way you put that. Excellent. What else? What other heaven and hell themes do we know? Have we heard? Let's get a few more. Jump in. Go ahead, go. Morris, go ahead. Heaven is described as paradise. Good. Hell is described as pain. That's the best way that people have uh, understood both of those concepts. So paradise, paradise versus pain. Good. Hell is pain and suffering, and paradise is, is pleasure. Um, heaven is paradise or pleasure. Okay, good, good. What else? Let's get another one more. Uh, what? Yeah, Marsha, go ahead. 
Hello. Would heaven have a lot of light and the opposite for hell, I guess. Okay. Darkness, physical pain. Light, just, light versus darkness. Okay, good. Physical pain, okay, we would have to understand what that means if, there, if there's no body. So, right, so what, what kind of, all right, and June, go ahead. I got you. June, go ahead. Do we believe in hell? You've come to the right class. You, this is, this is like, this is like perfect. It's like you're a plant, not that kind of plant, but I mean like perfect. So that's what we're talking about. But I, it's, it's important to understand, see, look, every paradigm shift, what makes a paradigm shift a paradigm shift is when you contrast the before with the after. Right? If everything becomes one challenge, yeah, it's what we thought, it's what we knew, then Sefelt at this. Right? We're missing something. So you need to know how we came in and how we're going out. Right? Kind of like heaven and hell, which we'll see soon. I'm, I'm kind of modeling this in the discussion. But we have to understand how we're coming into the conversation and how we'll come out of the conversation with a, a very different perspective. That's the goal of the session. That's why I wanted to ask, what, what are the notions out there? What have we heard? What have we seen? Look, can I tell you um, what typically we know about heaven and hell? Yeah, let, 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 let me paint you a picture of what we normally associate. I, I maybe you didn't want to say it in this class. Maybe everyone felt like they had to go a different direction. But what do we normally hear about heaven and hell? I'll tell you, I'm not afraid. Heaven, cloudy, always cloudy, always fluffy clouds. Heaven, angels, fluffy white angels. There's a theme here, by the way, fluffy white. And halos, don't forget the halos. Halos are always in vogue in heaven, right? You have to know how to dress in heaven, right? It's like, oh, where's your halo? Oh, I forgot it in my other wing thing. Okay, get your halo going. So we have the, oh, angels with wings. Forgot about that. Right? Obviously, angels have to move. They need wings, physical wings, or something for some reason, even though it's spiritual energy, but whatever. So we have clouds, angels with wings. We have halos and lots of white and light. Good. And what about hell? Oh, ho, ho. this is probably the more fun description. Okay, let's go. You ready? Let's jump in. Hell, first of all, I'm seeing red. Right? There's def definitely a red ambiance with hell. I'm seeing like a devil situation with a red, maybe a tail. Does the devil have a tail? Are we thinking tail? Yes, it's got some sort of pokey. Yes, horns, pitchfork, some like, oh, I was farming tomatoes. It got everywhere and somehow I'm here. Some sort of like combo situation. Flames, flames. Flames. Yes, fire, fire everywhere, yes. Fire and red, and it's hot. It's like Florida, right? It's always, it's always Florida over there. Um, love Florida, by the way. Um, but it's like, it's like, oh, my God, without, oh, sorry, my bad. Florida without the AC. Oh, now we're talking. Now we're, David, David Lazan, right? Vero Beach, right? Is that you? Yeah. Especially in the summer. But yeah, right now. I think Real Fuel was 103. I'm just saying. Almost as bad as Atlanta. Almost as bad as Hotlanta. Hotlanta. No one calls it that, but nonetheless. Now, getting back. Getting back to our point. That's how most people, 
I'm just going to say this. That's how most people have seen depictions of heaven and hell. Now, you might say, you've never heard this before. You've never seen this before. I just will reference you to straight up like Bugs Bunny cartoons. You got the two little things. You got the angel dude. You got the pitchfork guy. And it's like the right shoulder, left shoulder. We've all seen it. We've all been there. I mean, not been there, but kind of seen that. So that's how we might be coming into this conversation. Maybe not you and I, but many people would be coming in. And then if I ask you a follow-up question, well, how do you punch your ticket to either or? Like, what do you do to get into heaven? Or what do you do to get into hell? You might tell me, all right, let's just, we'll do this very quickly. What might you tell me? How do you get into heaven? Right, two doors or two, you know, going up, going, sorry, going up, going down. How do you get to either path? Help me out here. This is open now. Behavior. Your behavior. Excellent, Allison. How you, how you live. Specify if you do, flesh it out. If you do good deeds, if you live, live a good life, do good deeds, you go to heaven. Perfect. And if not, and if not, if you if do. If not, you, you go to hell. That's it. Okay, perfect. I mean, all my, my life, I can remember if you're going to go to hell or you're going to go to heaven. Even being brought up Jewish, and I mean, there was never, I was, there was no question. Uh, there was no interfaith, and I mean, most of my parents were Jewish. They were brought up in Orthodox homes. I mean, I even, there was always, you're either going to heaven or hell. That's it. That's S- it. Straight up. Exactly. Yeah. Good. We're going to talk about, we're going to talk about some of the stuff in the origins of where this comes from soon, but it's important to understand, it's really important to understand kind of where the starting point is, right? For many of us, and I think in popular understanding, the starting point is that there's a heaven and there's a hell, two different destinations. You punch your ticket different ways, doing different things, and that's how the whole thing rolls. That's the typical understanding. And the truth is, when you look at, for example, Rambam Maimonides, in his articulation of the 13 principles of faith, who was, miss, who was with me recently? I did an Ollie class on the 13 principles. Um, anybody with me recently? Stan was with me? Okay, we just wrapped it like a month or two ago. Okay, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. In the 13 principles of faith, so Maimonides' background, he, he articulates 13 big ideas within Judaism, basically saying like these are core principles, core fundamentals of Jewish philosophy of Jewish faith, of Jewish belief. This is part of the Jewish, you know, belief system. There's things that we have to do. Those are the mitzvot. But these are things that we have to believe in or know. Um, One of them has to do with reward and punishment. I'm going to share my screen because I'm that, you know, I'm a sharing type of person. And because I just sent out, you may have received it. I just sent out probably 25 minutes before the class, an email with a PDF of this file. Oh, you know what I'm going to do? Just because... Just because, here we go. I'm going to do something even better. Hold on. I'm gonna drop this file in the chat. If you didn't get in your email, you cannot not get it now. Cause I literally just dropped it in the chat. So there's no way you can avoid it now. It's headed your way. All you need to do is open the chat box. If you don't know how to open the chat box, just kind of move around until you see something that says chat and you should be able to see it. But either way, I'm sharing with you my screen. And I want to read right now 
text number one, which is coming from Maimonides. Take a look at text one, Maimonides, and I think you will, uh oh, hold on, I hear some noise, let me, let me mute everybody. Just wanna make sure that you can hear me um, and that everything is coming through clearly. Okay, text one, Rambam. Look what he says, the 11th principle. 13 principles of faith, here is number 11. It, it almost made the top 10, just like, oh, you know. Okay, 11th principle, that God, blessed be he, gives reward to those who observe the commandments of the Torah and punishes those who transgress its prohibitions. Now, it would seem, right here in Maimonides, classic Jewish thought. No, I mean, Maimonides is an authority on Jewish law and Jewish philosophy. So if Maimonides says it, you know it's legit. It's not some like, well, Maimonides, <laughs> Maimonides, what are you gonna do, that guy? You know, no, Maimonides is like mainstream legit. And he says here, principle number 11, it's not even a fringe belief within Jewish beliefs, it's one of the top 13. And that is, there is a concept of reward and punishment. Now that might sound like what we're talking about here is heaven and hell. Right? There are consequences to our actions on this world, but at the same time, there are also consequences in the hereafter. And we have maybe this formulation of this notion of heaven and hell based on this teaching of Rambam right here. Now, the truth is, some people like the notion of reward and punishment. Some people like it. I've spoken to people that said that it works for them. Why does it work for them? You know, you, it just, it helps define, it helps keep things, you know, this is good, it'll lead to something good, this is not good, it's going to lead to something not good. I know where I'm holding, right? It keeps me in check, feels good, I like rules, I like knowing consequences, it's great. And if it works, it works. But many of us, this type of approach doesn't really speak to us. Many people that I've spoken, again, I, I can only speak from my experience, I know what I know, what I think. I also know what people have told me how they think. And a lot of people have told me that this type of approach doesn't work for them. In other words, they don't like the whole like fire and brimstone, like do this or else, right? Allison, like you said before, like, listen, hey, you could do this, you're going to heaven, do that. Ooh, that's not gonna be good, right? Some people like that. Some, a lot of people though, or some people at least, don't connect with that. The question is, look, if somebody doesn't connect with it, if it's true, it is what it is, but maybe there is a little bit more nuance in this conversation. So I want to bring in some nuance and present the notion of heaven and hell, I think, in a way that is very unique to the conversation. It's mainstream Judaism, as you'll see soon, with all the sources that we're, we're going to bring from all across Jewish thought. It's absolutely mainstream Jewish ideas. But I think sometimes, you know, other ideas creep in and things can become a little bit uh, muddied. So it's important to go back to the sources and really understand what is heaven and hell from a Jewish perspective. To understand this, um, oh, and, and by the, this will take us to our first big idea. I'll tell it to you now, I'll give you the outline. The first big idea of today's class is that the Jewish, con the Jewish understanding or conception of heaven and hell is radically and fundamentally different than the popular, well-known version. So what you've heard out there and what's spoken out there is radically different than the Jewish notion, the Jewish concept of heaven and hell. That's going to be our first big idea. To understand this, we have to look at the concept of reward and punishment, which we just cited from Maimonides. Maimonides says, 
That's a fundamental principle. It's a fundamental belief in Torah, sorry, in Judaism, that God rewards those who do good and punish those who do the opposite. The question is, what does it mean when we talk about reward and punishment? What exactly does that mean? So I want to share with you this idea that it's less reward and punishment and more consequence or even more precisely, natural consequence. I don't want to give you an example. So let's say there's a fire burning. And what I mean is an actual fire. Let's say you have a candle, Shabbat candle, two Shabbat candles burning brightly, right? And the flame is, is lifting from those candles. And a person walks over and decides to put their hand in the fire. What's going to happen, right? Unless they are impervious to a fire somehow, or wearing some sort of, you know, protective gear, what's going to happen is they're, they're going to burn their hand, God forbid, right? And, and the hand's going to get burned. It's going to get hurt. Why is that so? So is it because the fire is very protective over its space, and therefore if you encroach on the space of the fire, it's going to attack you by burning you? Or is it just the natural consequence of putting your hand in something that's very hot, it's going to get burned. And of course, the answer is the latter. It's not that the fire is getting offended, the fire is lashing out, the fire is judging you and punishing you. It's not a punishment. The fire doesn't know you. Doesn't, it's, not, it's not personal. It just is what it is. There's a natural consequence. If you put your hand in the fire, it's going to get, it's going to get burned. That is the natural consequence. In a very similar way, Jewish philosophers, sages, mystics speak about God's reward and punishment in the very same way. It's less punitive. It's not an external or extrinsic experience. It's not like you do this and then extrinsically something else happens, right? This triggers this extrinsic and that's the punishment. No, no, no. The action itself is or, or, or creates the consequence. Or there's a natural consequence from the action. Let me show you inside. Again, if you have the, the PDF pulled up, you can see it. If not, I'm pulling it up here. Either way, you can follow along with me. This is text number two. This is coming from the great scholar and philosopher, Rabbi Menachem Rekanati, who writes the following. Take a look. The punishments described in the Torah are not similar to the punishments needed for transgressing the decree of an earthly king. First thing he establishes is God doesn't play by human rules. Rather, the Torah's punishments are natural consequences. One who fails to observe a Torah commandment is denied the good that naturally results from its, from its observance. This is similar to one who doesn't sow, who then obviously cannot reap or one who doesn't wear clothing and then becomes cold, or the nature of fire to cause heat, the nature of water to make wet, the nature of bread to satiate. Similarly, it is the nature of each mitzvah to elicit the positive consequences that are promised for its observance or the negative consequences for its transgression. Um, has a mother in history ever told her children in the winter, don't forget to put on your boots before you go outside in the snow? Has that ever happened? Yes. Have children ever not listened and walked outside without boots? Yes. How do I know this? I was that child. 
I'm kidding. I wasn't always that child, but I grew up in Pittsburgh, as some of you may know, maybe all of you know. I grew up in Pittsburgh, and I remember when we were kids, it used to snow all the way up there when I was younger and smaller, right? It snowed a lot. Our yeshiva, our Jewish day school, was in the neighborhood. We all lived in walking distance. If anyone, knows, if anyone is familiar with Squirrel Hill, which is the primary Jewish neighborhood in Pittsburgh, so um, everything's in walk dis- walking distance. There was never a bus, right? You walked to school, maybe you got a ride, but whatever, everyone ro- walked to school. So it snowed, did it matter? The teachers walked to school and the, and the students walked to school. It's always school. Anyway, what's my point? Let's get back to the story. So yeah, a mother tells her child, wear boots. Put on a coat. Wear gloves. Has a child ever not worn gloves for a snowball fight? Yes. Did their hands get very cold? Yes. Did at some point they have to stop and run their hands over uh, um, in, in, cold wa- in warm water or whatever to get to, get to feel better? Yes. Is, did the snow punish the child for not listening to his mother or her mother? No. It's not a punishment. It's a consequence. You go without boots, your toes are going to get cold right? In the, in the winter. You go without gloves, your hands are going to get cold. That's it. You put your hand in fire, it's going to be hot. That, that's, it's, it's the natural law of the universe. In a very similar way, the Jewish philosophers and the mystics, both. So we have the philosophers and the mystics. It's, all, it's well discussed throughout the entire spectrum of authentic Jewish thought. Judaism maintains that God has set natural it's, it's not really karma. See, karma, well, the truth is, I don't know. I'm not well-versed. I've heard karma be used in many different ways. And um, without knowing a more accurate description of karma, I, I don't know that I can, I don't know if I can compare it with that term as it's, as it's used. So, but I'll try to describe this as accurately as possible as I understand it, and hopefully that its own, authentic, its own truth or its own um, meaning will come, will come forth. So God has set up the world, the universe, in a way which, you know, there's a, there's a statement in our, of our sages in Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, that's from a Mishnah, again, classic Jewish thought, the Mishnah. Schar mitzvah mitzvah. Schar means the reward. The reward of a mitzvah is a mitzvah. What does that mean? Some people say, you know what it means, when you do a good deed, a mitzvah is a, like a good deed, you do a good deed, so you're going to do another good deed, because doing good begets more good. Mitzvah, goreres, mitzvah. One good deed leads to another. So get on that good train and keep the good times rolling. Okay, that's one explanation. A bit of a deeper explanation is schar mitzvah, mitzvah. The reward of a mitzvah is a mitzvah. That means that mitzvah, and this gets back to, a, to an idea that was mentioned before. Mitzvah doesn't only mean good deed. It doesn't only mean commandment. Mitzvah also means connection. Mitzvah is related to the word safsa, which means connection being fused together. A mitzvah connects us with our source, with our purpose, with our soul. It's a bodily action that we do that connects us with purpose. So, what that means is, what that means is, is that when we do a mitzvah, what's the greatest reward for a mitzvah? The mitzvah itself. (laughs) What do I get? I I connected. What do I get? Oh, no, you, you got connected. That's what you got. But what do I get in addition to that? You need anything else? <laughs> what else do you need? You literally plugged into the ultimate truth of the universe. You plugged into your own purpose and your own reality. You need what? You need a, a, a decoder ring from a Cracker Jack box? Like, what else do you need? You need like a box top, uh, five points for something? Like, what else do you need? 
you got the ultimate. So what else do you need? So the bottom line is, doing good, doing a mitzvah, is its own reward. It's not an extrinsic, external reward that, okay, push this button and you're going to get what's behind door number one. No, you get what you got. As the Rikanati, we just read it inside text two, as he says, on the flip side, if you don't, then you missed out. Now, it doesn't mean that it's, it's irredeemable. There's no, 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 no don't, don't get carried away. We're not saying that. No one's saying that. But the bottom line is, if you had an opportunity to connect and you didn't connect, you missed the opportunity. So what we know here is, based on, based on these ideas so far, that reward and punishment, when we talk about this in a Jewish context, reward and punishment, God rewards, God punishes, it's not something external or extrinsic. It's part of the natural fabric and law of the universe. I'll give you an example. I want to give you a relationship example. Imagine you're going, you have a, a romantic vacation with your significant other planned. Oh, let's think, let's, let's think. Um, where's a, okay, unmute yourself if you have a destination in mind. Where's this romantic trip taking place? Give me somewhere exotic. Hawaii. Hawaii. Perfect, perfect. You're going to Hawaii. Fantastic. You have the tickets. Remember back in the day you used to get physical tickets? Remember that? Like, okay, you get the tickets. Maybe they still do that if you have a travel aid. Anyway, you get the tickets. You're booked. You have the hotel, the resort. It's cavaldic. It's beautiful. But imagine a day before, a day before your vacation, you get into a big, 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 big disagreement. You get into a big fight with your significant other. Oof. Wow, and now things are very tense. But you got the trip, I mean, the trip is like thousands of dollars. I mean, it's already paid for, right? It's, it's in the books, you got the tickets, right? But there's all this, you know, man, there's a lot of tension. Oh, it's like, oof, everyone's like avoiding each other, like not talking, it's like harsh terms, like the whole deal, right? Like a whole kind of tough situation. How enjoyable is that vacation going to be if nothing improves? How enjoyable is it going to be? On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the most enjoyable possible, the most enjoyable ever, and 1 being uh, nothing to write home about. Yeah, it's going to be hovering around a 1, right? No, if you, or a negative 1. Or a negative 1. If you're, not, if you're not really on talking, like if you're not, that's going to be a rough situation. Okay, now let me ask you a question. Is that some sort of extrinsic punishment for getting into a fight? It's not an extrinsic. When I say extrinsic, I just want to, I've, I'm using this term a few times. I want to just clarify what I mean, just to make sure you're understanding what I'm saying. When I say the word extrinsic, what I mean is something that's not naturally born of this action, but rather something that, that is, you know, secondarily or externally um, superimposed due to, you know, due to a certain thing. Like, for example, uh, going to work and earning a paycheck. So it's not like the work itself. Listen, if your job is digging for coins, digging for gold, and then you find gold and that's what you get, then it's, then it's intrinsic. Then your reward is intrinsic. But if, you're, if you push buttons, but then you get a paycheck, that's something extrinsic. It's like you did that, but you got this. So yeah, you got it because of that, but it's not, it's not inherent. Does that, does what I'm saying make sense? Yes, are you with me so far on this? Okay. Well, we're, what I'm talking about here is that God is not saying, or the Jewish belief on reward and punishment, it's not like you did something good, so then God's going to send you a check. 
He did something not good, so God's going to take a debit. It's not how it works. It's, it's intrinsic. It's inherent. Right? If you're not on talking terms and you're going on that vacation, you're not going to have a nice vacation. And that's not a punishment. It's not, ex- it's not external. It's not like someone did something. It's not something else. It's this. It's direct. It's literally this. Like, we're here to enjoy each other and we're not enjoying each other. So there you go. It, it's, it, it's, it's literally this. So when we talk about the reward of a mitzvah, and we talk about the opposite, right? So what are we talking about? It's not something outside the experience. It's not something in addition to the experience. It's literally the experience itself. The more we do, the more good we do, the more we're connected. We're connected with God, truth, purpose, our own soul, reality. The less, the more we go the other way, there's more disconnection. So here's the point. What would you call a vacation, but like a really expensive, beautiful vacation, and there's like this big tension looming? Know what you call that? A living hell. That's what you call it, a living... Well, maybe you might not call it that, but in the purposes of tonight's conversation, because we're talking about heaven and hell, work with me here. A person might call that living hell. Why? Because you're there, you're alive, and you're in paradise, right? You're in Hawaii, but it's hell. This is not enjoyable. And if you're, on a good, if you're in a good place, and you're, and you're enjoying each other, and you're in paradise, you know what you're calling it? Paradise. This is heaven. So here's the question. This is the final piece of this puzzle. Don't worry, we have much more to talk about. The final piece of this puzzle is, how many Hawaii's are there? Ask yourself this question. How, in this example, how many Hawaii's, Hawaii's are we talking about? Two or one? One. How many types? I, there's, of course, there's a spectrum. But in, in you know, the two sides that we're... The size that we're talking about, how many experiences of Hawaii are there that we've spoken about? Two. It could either be paradise or it could be a living hell. And the question is, where are we at? What have we done? Where are we holding? It's the same destination. It's how you experience it. You could experience it as heaven, as paradise, as the best thing ever. Or you can experience it as the worst, as a living hell. This, hold one second, one second. Hold, hold on one second. This captures, I'm almost, I'm almost ready to, to, to close out this idea. This captures, I think, in a pretty accurate way. Just, oh, what's bef- I'm still wrapping it up, but I want to give you one more example. Forget, um, forget the romantic vacation example. Let's talk about a skiing vacation. You're going skiing. Let's say you're going to, um, let me get another mountain, or, or a mountain. What's a good ski resort mountain? Help me out. Beach Mountain. Beach Mountain? North Carolina. North Carolina. North City. Vail. 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 Okay, fine. We have, what's the one in Vancouver called? Whistler. Whisper. Whisper. Wait, wait, am I too loud? Joking. Joking, joking, joking. So, um, look, let's say you're scared. Let's say you're skiing, yeah, and uh, it's beautiful, but you forgot your gloves, 
and your coat and your boots and your jacket and your sunglasses and you're just skiing in a t-shirt and shorts and flip-flops, maybe that's in. Maybe people love that. But let's just work with a normative example here. Let's just say that that's not enjoyable. So you know what? You're in a beautiful ski resort, beautiful slopes, everything is beautiful. The problem is maybe you're, you, may, you might not enjoy it. And I know, why don't you just go to the gift shop or whatever the, and, and get your stuff. Don't get too, comp don't, don't complicate my, uh, my, my examples here, right? Just the bottom line is you can have, you can, you can be in the space of what would otherwise be a beautiful experience and be miserable, or you could be enjoying it. And that's the Jewish perspective on heaven and hell. It's the same location. Spoiler alert. It's not up or down the elevator. It's the same destination. The question is, how are you enjoying it? And you might say, well, wait a second. Hold on. I don't get that. You, you might be thinking, it doesn't make sense. Like, if it's a beautiful place, right? You're telling me it's this, heaven and hell are the same place? So is it nice or is it not nice? So I'm gonna, it's nice. So if it's nice, why wouldn't I enjoy it? How could it be hell? Oh, okay. I gave, you an, I gave you a scenario before where it could be hell on earth, right? I gave you a few scenarios. If you're in a fight with your significant other in romantic vacation, if you're not wearing the right gear on your ski, I'm giving you scenarios. Okay, all we need to do is find some spiritual scenarios that evoke the same concept. But again, I want to I emphasize, in Judaism, heaven and hell are the same floor. What I mean like on the elevator. It's the same... Oh, hey, welcome. It's the same destination. It's not two destinations. It's one destination. By the way, that saves God on set design. I'm, I'm saying it's, it's much more efficient. It's the same set. It's the same. It's like, wait a second. I saw that back alley in that movie and that movie. Universal. Come on. Anyway, getting back to the point here. So it's the same set but a different context based on you, what your soul brings into the experience. So what is hell? If it's objectively nice or beautiful, right? Let's say if, if it could be heaven, then how could it be hell at the same time? That's what we're going to get to next. But first we had a question. Irena, go ahead. Um, so do we have, the, because it's one place and it's us who make it one thing or the other, is there... Um, is there a word for hell in, 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 in Hebrew? Yes. Yes. We'll get there in a second. Hold on. Hold that thought. We're going to get there. And the name is going to really express why. Why it's, um, it's not being enjoyed, even though it's potentially beautiful. Yeah. Cookie, you had a question? Don't forget to unmute yourself. I have a question. Wait, hold on, Morris, one second. Cookie, go ahead. Morris, you're next. Does that, um, does that mean then that we are totally, completely, individually responsible for our heaven and hell? Period. We are responsible. I would say, like, the answer is yes, but I would, I would tweak the language a little bit. Uh -huh. It's up to us. We, we choose how we're going to feel about it. In other words... Based on how we prep for it, which I don't want to give too much, we're about to get into it, so I don't want to say it before I say it yet. I'll do that also. But basically, how we go into it will determine how we experience it. And that's going to be a big piece of it. It's the same place. It's up to us 
our actions, choices, naturally, it's not uh, punitive or whatever, naturally determine how we will relate to it. Again, think the best example that I, that I can give is that romantic vacation, right? The bottom line is if you're not speaking to the other person, you're not going to be enjoying that experience. I mean, if that's what it's about. If it's about that romantic experience with that person, I should qualify, right? And you're not, uh, and you're not in a good place with that person, it's not, it's not enjoyable. So how you come into it will determine a lot about how it feels, which, again, we're going to get to in a moment. Morris, go ahead. Rabbi, are you trying to say that a mitzvah is a reward to the soul? What I'm saying is a mitzvah, excellent question. A mitzvah itself is its own reward, as we'll see in a moment. And, and how, how do we define reward? That, again, we're going to get to that in a moment. It's not the reward that we typically think of. Again, I'm just, uh, it's very important. Yeah, sorry, go ahead, Morris, go ahead. I say this is esoteric, but from the standpoint that it does reward your soul because you're doing something well. Right. You're doing something good. Yeah, and the reward is the action, it's, is the experience itself. In other words, if I am kind and loving and attentive and respectful to my spouse, right? And, 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 and we're in a good place. Is that good place a reward? I don't see it as a reward. I, I see it more as more of more... I see it more as a natural consequence, right? Yeah, what yeah. happens if your, if your spouse doesn't respond? Okay. All right. So then, then that's the X factor, right? That, that's, that, but that's when human beings get involved. So you're right. That's the, no, you're 100% right. In other words, in a human example, that's why any example that I can give, a uh, human example is, is going to be imperfect because there's always another factor or two that could complicate things. So... When we talk about, you know, fire, there's probably no chance the fire is not going to burn or boil water or whatever it's going to do or ice is going to make something cold. It is what it is. When it comes to human beings, I could be nice, kind, gentle, loving, attentive, respectful, and the other person might be, you know, not in that space, and then that could throw off this, this example. Fine. But we're talking about in a, in a more um, law, rules, laws of the universe, what we might call, maybe we could call the spiritual law of attraction. Maybe that's also karma. I'm not sure. I, I, I hesitate to give other, uh, other um, appellations, other descriptions, other verbiage uh, to, to, the, to these ideas. But the natural law is if you're doing good, you're plugging in. And if you're plugging in, you're connected. Right? You're in a good space. It's a natural piece. If you're connected, you're connected. It's like a relationship. Again, in relationships, there's another factor. Okay, but I feel like it's going to be clarified as we move on to the next section. So let's, let's pause for a moment um, and let's move into the next piece, which I think is going to be helpful. So what is, if, if, it's, all the same, if it's all the same destination, it's not two different destinations. And that's the first, big, I, I said, really big idea here is, you know, it's not like, you know, white screen, red screen, you know, top floor, you know, penthouse and, uh, um, I don't know, basement level. That's not, no, no, no. It's the same, same space, same heaven or same whatever, same destination. But how you experience it, what does that mean? Here's the, here's the simple way to understand it. 
stripped of all the excuses, stripped from all the materialism, separated from the body, no Baba Mises, no Baba Mises means like, you know, tall tales that we tell ourselves, no nothing. Take away all the justifications and all the excuses. Imagine a mirror that is honest. I was about to say brutally honest, but there's no brutality here at all. It's just honestly honest. And that mirror is there, and it's well lit. It's a well lit mirror, and it's maybe a magnifying mirror. And now everything is on display. And the soul experiences everything that it has done in tandem with the body, everything that it has said, everything that it has thought, everything it has felt, everything it has, you know, worked on, manipulated, you know, all, everything, the whole picture. When I ask you a question, in that stark light of truth, how does the soul feel? How does the soul feel? Vulnerable. I think vulnerable is kind, and I appreciate your kindness. That was very vulnerable for you to say. No, I'm kidding. I, well, here's what I think. I think, I think that many a soul would feel a little bit... You know when you have that um, in the aftermath of a bad decision? In a, in a place of truth, when you're in a place of truth, and you tell yourself, what did I do? What was I thinking? What was I thinking? How did I do that? Not, not when we're in the space of, oh, they had it coming to them, or oh, this is what, you know, that's the justification mode. But remember, we're talking about olam ha'emet, a world of truth. All of the false stuff, all of the, the lies, the deception, the convoluted stories we tell ourselves, all of that is triggered, is connected with the body and the animal soul. Not with the godly soul that we're talking about here. Not with that divine, that peace of God. It's now disconnected. It's moved away from all that stuff, from all the, the false stuff. And it's now in a space of truth. And here's the question. Standing before itself or herself, the soul is feminine. Standing before herself. How does she feel? No, no it's not about anyone else. It's not about anyone else. It's no external judgment. It's, it's nothing, nothing. No, forget about all the other stuff. Standing in front of that mirror. How does the soul feel? No justifications, no excuses, just the truth of what it thought, of what it said, of what it did in tandem with the body. So how does it feel? And here's the question, the next question. If it recognizes some shortcomings, if it recognizes some failings, whether it's in the form of missed opportunities or whether it's in the form of mistakes that hurt others, can you imagine in a, sp in a space of truth, no deception, no lies, no spin, spin-free zone, in that space of truth, how does the soul feel? It's not, it's, not, uh, it's not any extrinsic pain. There's no extrinsic pain. It's just the, the sense of regret 
the sense of loss, the sense of harm, the sense of missed opportunities. Jackie Mason has a wonderful bit that is so true. You know Jackie Mason, the Jewish comedian? Anyway, I listened to some of his, somebody posted somewhere an old recording of his, very not 2020, some of his material, but I'm not talking about that material. I'll talk about some material that, that would still work today and is not, I don't think it's offensive. He says, every Jew says, when they go to New York or, or any New York Jew says, I could have bought that building 50 years ago. That building was $5. I would have been a billionaire now, right? Every, everyone says, I could have bought that building. It's a thing. It's a thing. Um, but let's say you really could have bought that building. Let's say you really did have that opportunity. And you missed it. You missed it. How do you feel? Listen, no one likes to sit with that, with that feeling. And it's not healthy to sit with that feeling. So we tell ourselves, no, we missed it. We got to move on. But in an honest space, it might cause a little bit of, uh, of anguish. On some level, some, at least a little bit of, of, of pain, the pain of the missed opportunity. Now, that's a silly example, right? That's, a, that's more, um, like we said last week, that's more uh, dead fish. Dead fish. How much dead fish can you have? Money. How much can you have already, right? Whatever. You have what you have and that's it. You move on, right? Can't take it with you anyway. You know the story? Oh, I got to tell the story. I know we're right in the middle of something. Don't worry, I'm going to get back to it. Health cup. You got to just keep it. And, and here's a story. There was once a very wealthy man who had a few, a few children. Jewish guy passed away. Before he passed away, he uh, told his children, I'm leaving two notes. Um, one note should be opened up immediately after my passing, and the next one should be opened up 30 days after my passing. Okay, so they, they passes away, they open up the first note, and it has his tzava. Tzava means a will. It has his will and testament, what he wants, how he wants, details. One of the things there he included is um, that they should bury him wearing his favorite pair of socks. That was his request. He should be wearing his favorite pair of socks. So the family goes to the Hebra Kadisha, the Jewish burial society, and they say to the, the Jewish burial society, the kids go to the, and they say, look, this was our father's wishes. He wanted to be buried in his pa a pair of socks. The Hebra Kadisha say, with all due respect to your father, we don't, that's, not how, that's not how it works. We don't, uh, you don't bury in clothing. You have a simple white burial shroud, very natural, very, um, very natural uh, burial. It's not, uh, it's not a thing. So, the children say, yeah, but he, he wrote this in his will. Don't you want to honor his, his wishes? They say, listen, where he is now in a, a world of truth, he knows the truth and he, he recants on his wishes. Certainly he doesn't want that anymore. And, and rest assured, you're not going against his wishes in his current state. Okay, that made them feel better and they buried him without his socks. 30 days later, they open up the letter, the second letter. And the second letter says, dear children, by now you certainly have realized that you cannot take anything with you, including your favorite pair of socks. And he proceeded to explain, and he proceeded to explain how they should have, you know, different, they're maybe inheriting a lot of money, but they should have a different perspective on what's really valuable and true in life. And it's a powerful idea. So getting back to this point, look, the physical regrets are one thing, but I'm not talking about physical regrets. The soul standing in the afterlife which I'm not calling heaven or hell because that's subjective. How you experience it is how you experience it. In that 
objective, not the subjective feeling about it, but in, the, in that objective space. When the soul stands in that place, it is not going to regret, you know, the time that it almost won at the, uh, at the Vegas. Help me out here. At the, um, what is it? Slot. Slots. Slot machine. Slot machine. Where it got seven, seven, cherry. <laughs> Who need the cherry? Give me a seven, seven, seven. Chabadniks would go for a 770. I mean, that would be like the real jackpot. Anyway, if you know the reference, fine. Anyway, the point is like this. Um, the soul is not going to have those, that anguish. The, 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 the pain of the soul is going to be in missed opportunities of goodness, mitzvot, good deeds, and the times that have caused the opposite of goodness in this world, the time that have caused pain and, and separation for itself between it and God or between it and someone else, it's not an extrinsic punishment. It's, a, it's, it's an objective reality in a space of truth. You're not hiding. There's nowhere to hide. There's no reason to hide. Who are you hiding from? It's you and yourself, right? Listen, we should all be having these moments of truth with ourselves before we go to sleep every night. We should have an honest reckoning. The Jewish way is to have a chesh ben anefesh, an honest, introspective accounting every single night before we go to bed. We, we think about what we did, what others did to us. We ask for, 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 for forgiveness from God and we unilaterally forgive anyone who, who, har, who, who in any way hurt us so that we can go to rest in a pure state. So we should do this all the time. Fine. To whatever extent we do it, we do it. But there's nowhere to hide after 120 when we go over to the other side. It's just a soul. It's not a body. There's no, you know, excuses anymore. It's, it's all laid out. And, and no one else is laying it out. You know it better than anyone else. It's just you and you. And now the question is, so how do you feel about it? How do you feel about it? So for someone... Hold on one second. Hold on, let me just wrap this up. So for somebody that, that, that lived a perfect life, no regrets, I don't mean like no pleasure left un, untapped. I mean spiritually no regrets, right? Perfect. It's paradise. In this space of light, it's beautiful. I can enjoy it. Uh, no shame, no embarrassment, no, no missed opportunities. I'm fully present. But if we have missteps and mistakes... And missed opportunities. So how does it feel? A little bit more painful. But here's the good news. Let me, let me continue. And I, 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 if I stop here, we're only a third of the way done with even this piece of it. Let alone the other pieces. So let me just finish. We'll take questions in a moment. So what happens? So what happens? The soul feels, assuming that it's not perfect. Because who's perfect, right? So assuming that it's not perfect. So it's going to feel some pain. Internal pain. Not ex external pain. Internal pain. No Pitchfork, not, not, nothing external, internal. That pain itself actually allows the soul to feel the separation that it, that it has experienced or had experienced on earth. And in feeling the pain of the separation, the soul... Feeling, the pain of, feeling that pain of separation, the soul actually lets it go. It's not magic. You know, when a person, let me finish that sentence, is able to work through that 
and get to a better place. So let me give you the example back to the romantic vacation. If you're on the vacation, even not on the vacation, if, you, if you're with the other person and you're not in a great place and you really, really, really take a deep look inside and you say, is this who I am? That I said something not nice? That I did something not nice? Is this who I am? How can I look at myself? Is this really who I am? It's not nice. It's not right. It's not, it's not who I want to be. Feeling the pain of the separation, that itself is the first step to moving to a better place. To letting that go and moving, to, it's a catalyst to moving to a better place. In a similar vein, in a similar way, is the soul's experience in the afterlife. And this is what we call the transition from heaven to hell. It's not at different locations. There's no set change. There's no wardrobe change. It's a very simple shift. From the pain of missed opportunities and, mis and missteps to the pain itself purges. Hence the, the Jewish term Gehenim, Gehinnom, which means purgatory, not hell. Judaism does not call it hell. It calls it Gehinnom which is purgatory, moving from purgatory, which is doing what its name suggests, purging anything that was not done, that was done, not done correctly, purging to get to a better place. And what, what does the purging? The pain itself and the experience of feeling of what it has done. Now, what I want to do is, again, hold on, before questions or comments, etc., I, I, I need to share with you the texts, the Jewish texts that articulate this, these ideas. I want you to, we're, this is all about learning it from the sources, and so let's do that right now. Let's take a look at text number three. Let's take a look at text three. Okay, listen, it depends how you read these things, okay? It can make it sound like it's very extrinsic, but when you know how to read this and know how to understand it, what I said before shines through. Text number three from the Zohar. Then three appointed messengers descend upon the man. One of them makes a record of all the good deeds and the misdeeds that he has performed in this world. One casts upon the reckoning of one casts up the reckoning of his days, and the third is the one who has accompanied the man from the time when he was in his mother's womb. And I think the relevant point is this last line, the third. It doesn't matter one, two, or three. It's not a numbers game. The point is that there is an objective reality. There's a residue of everything that we have thought, said, or done from the time we came into this world until the time we come out of this world. And that sticks with us. And when we look at ourselves, it feels a certain way. Either we take pride in it or we're ashamed of it. That's, that's what it is. Take a look at text number four again from the Zohar. The souls of people before ascending into paradise are immersed in the river of fire, where they are purged without being consumed. The soul originated in fire, coming from beneath the throne of glory, which is a fire, thus fire alone has the virtue of consuming every pollution of the soul and making the soul emerge pure and white. If you think that the soul is actually going into physical fire, then you are reading Kabbalah literally, which, is, which cannot be done. You cannot read Kabbalah literally because it's written as an allegory and it's written in a very coded or encoded way. So that Kabbalah speaks of, the Zohar is the, one of the primary works of Kabbalah, the Book of Radiance. Kabbalah says that what happens to the soul, what happens to the souls of people 
before they go into paradise. They first go into the river of fire. What's the river of fire? It's a purging. It's, it's that shame. It's, that, it's, it's the negativity that it feels and that it owns. And in doing so, it can then let it go. Without feeling it, without staring at it face to face, you can't let it go. As long as you're brushing it under the rug, then it's not going anywhere. But when you face it, when you feel it, when you own it, then you can fully feel it and then let it go. That's how it works with feelings. That's how it works with experiences. As long as you're deflecting, as long as you're you know, redirecting, you're not dealing with it and it's not going away. When you deal with it head on and you face it honestly and you feel what you need to feel, then you can work through it. That feeling what you need to feel and that working through it is what we call Gehinnom, which is purgatory. Let's take a look at text number five from the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, in his work of Jewish mysticism called Torah Ar. Look what he says. The purpose of Gehinnom, if you want to know how to spell hell in Hebrew, or it's still English, but English letters, this is, it's, not, it's purgatory, but this is how it's spelled. G-E-H-I-N-O-M, Gehinnom. The purpose of Gehinnom is to refine the soul and rid it of any negativity that it contracted. This is similar to the process of smelting silver, wherein the dross is burned away in a furnace, leaving the silver clean and without impurities. So too, for the soul to be able to process the supernal pleasures, for it to be able to take delight in God's radiance, it must first be refined in the fires, fires, quote, fires of Gehinnom, wherein the good is separated from the bad. And what that means, I love this idea. What that means is, it's kind of related to what we said last week. As long as the soul is attracted, connected, still attached in some way to physical stuff, it's not going to enjoy its spiritual, its new spiritual environs. Remember, last week we talked about death, separation of body and soul. Body goes away, the soul further moves away from the body. Well, what's the destination? The destination, that's today's class. Where is it going? Its destination is one destination. That is to a place of truth, a place of light. Not physical light, godly light, divine light. It's a place of absolute truth. And in that space of absolute truth, the soul comes face to face with its own reality. And if it looks in the mirror, so to speak, and finds something not so nice, well, then the soul has to work through that. And the soul has to work through that and deal with that and feel that, and then get past that. And when it gets past that, now it can enjoy its spiritual environment. That's what purgatory is. It's a process of working through the, pre, the prior experiences of the soul-body connection. It's working through those negative experiences to fully enjoy this place. Going back to Hawaii, because who doesn't want to go back to Hawaii, if you're still carrying, and I use this term um, intentionally, if you're still carrying baggage from that previous fight, you're not going to enjoy, you're not going to enjoy your current vacation, the holiday. You're not going to enjoy paradise because you're carrying the baggage. When does it work through the baggage? After it works through in the state of purgatory. So... Um, one second, hold on, I just saw a, a great question in the chat. Cookie, so why can't we do that here on earth? And the answer is, you can. That's one of the, that's the next big idea. Well, I think we've had two or three big ideas, but one of the next big ideas is your point. Why can't we do that here on earth? The answer is, we can. We can, 
the more we work through that now on this side, the easier the transition is or the, the easier of a step it is into enjoying what awaits us on the other side is for the soul. So again, the more we're connected materialistically, the more baggage we're carrying, the more we haven't worked through stuff and let this stuff go. When I say let it go, I mean heal from it. The more we're still attached and carrying baggage, we can't fully appreciate it. Imagine you're at a beautiful opera. Imagine, <laughs> Adina Malka. So do we get credit for time served here? Yes, we do get credit for time served. But not if you take it as baggage. If you, if you fix it here, you get the credit. Yes, yes, you get the credit for time served. Uh, Matt, Morris, go ahead. Sorry, Morris, go ahead. All right, I have a question. Yeah. The question is, is forgiveness the same thing as cleansing? Forgiveness is part of it. If we're still holding... Because we go to the high holidays and we're yeah. forgiven. And the point of the matter is, is the soul forgiven? And if so, that's the same thing as cleansing. Excellent question. Excellent question. So here's the deal. The soul is forgiven and cleansed on, on Yom Kippur. But the, okay. truth, the truth of the matter is, it's not all or nothing. And it's not black and white, there are gradations of what we call teshuva, which means getting back to a good place. And if we're, again, if we're honest with ourselves, I would ask the question, on Yom Kippur, when we stand before God and we say, achet, achet, for this transgression and that sin and that iniquity, when we, when we say the confessional prayers, as sincere as we are, do we sometimes tell ourselves or do we sometimes think, you know what? Yeah, we may be coming back to that one next year, and we may need to say that one again. If we're being honest, not if we're pretending. If we're pretending, then, then that's it. But if we're really being honest, and even if we honestly do mean it, and we tell ourselves we're not, never going to do it again, do we not find ourselves the next year having what to, uh, what to say sorry for and make amends for? I think the answer is yes, because for this very simple reason that we're not perfect. So my understanding of your question was, if we've taken care of this on Yom Kippur, so why can't the soul have easy access, the easy pass straight into a, a full experience? The answer is because it's a little bit more complicated than that. Because even if we've had Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur comes in many different levels, right? It's not all or nothing. Yes, God forgives us and gives us another lease on life for another year. Please, God. But... You know, where were we at? Were we, did we totally let it go? You know, it's interesting. In the book of Tanya, book of classic uh, Jewish uh, mystical wisdom, the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad again, so he, um, he uh, um, talks about pushing away evil with two hands. He says, if you have a negative intrusive thought or, or a negative uh, intention, push away with two hands. And the commentaries on Tanya ask the question, why does he say two hands? Why not one hand? He says, you know what the risk is? You know what the danger is? Sometimes we push something away with one hand, but the other hand pulls it closer to us. Sometimes we push it away with one hand. At the same time, we're like, yeah, but it's not so bad also. Or, yeah, maybe tomorrow I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to embrace it. So sometimes we're not so perfect. And we're not so perfect even in our attempts to, to, to correct and to, to, to kind of recalibrate. So all of that is a, a bit of a longer, uh, somewhat of a longer answer to your to your. I think a very important and straightforward question, which is, well, what about Yom Kippur? The answer is yes. 
we are forgiven and atoned, but there's still more to do. And even a soul that's been atoned for and cleansed on Yom Kippur by God, God's being nice. But when the soul looks at itself, the soul might find things that it's not proud of. And if the soul is not proud of it, it's not going to enjoy fully the experience. And that's what we're talking about. It's not an external punishment. It's not a pitchfork. It's not this, that, or the other. It's simply the soul not being able to, to fully appreciate it. It's being on vacation. You're in Hawaii, beautiful resort, and it's wonderful. But you have, but in your heart of hearts, you, you, no one else tells you how you feel. You know how you feel. You're feeling uncomfortable. You're feeling ashamed. You're feeling hurt. You're feeling like you hurt someone else. You're feeling something. Are you going to fully enjoy it? You're not going to fully enjoy it. What do we call that? Purgatory. Why? Because that feeling itself helps you work through it and helps you get to a better place. Even the soul in, in the afterlife helps it get to a better place. And in doing so, it can then fully enjoy it. Letting go of what it needs to let go of, owning what it needs to own, it can then move past it and then fully embrace it. So that's, uh, that's, um, that's a big piece of it. Now, I want to tell you, uh, so somebody asked, I think Mark asked about the slingshot. Um, okay, there are different forms. Of, so purgatory, Gehinnom, purgatory is from the word purge. Purge means to get rid of. So it's all about getting rid of the negativity to enjoy. You don't want to be held back. You don't want to be, no baggage, fully be present and enjoy the experience. And that happens through that brutal honesty and then letting it go. Okay. And that's purgatory. Different forms of purgatory. I want to share with you four different, four different ideas. Okay? This is like a soul catharsis. It's like a soul healing. It's a very cathartic process. In order to get into in order to enjoy the amenities, if you will, of paradise, you have to go through this process just in order to cleanse. Um, there, more specifically, there are four different types of purgatory. There are probably more than four, but four that I'll share with you. Um, there is the Gehenim Shal Eish, which is the Gehenim, the purgatory of fire. There's the Gehenim Shal Sheleg, which means the purgatory of ice. So we have purgatory of fire, purgatory of ice. We have Chibut HaKever, which means the purgatory of the grave. And finally, we have kaf hakela, which means the hollow of the sling, which in other words means the slingshot. So let me explain. Now it sounds exotic. We have fire, we have ice, we have graves, and we have slingshots. Okay, so what's going on? Why all these and what does it mean? Let me explain. So number one, the Gehenna of fire, purgatory of fire, is the experience of the soul in reconciling its misdirected passion. Again, it's all euphemistic. It's all non-literal. It's not actual fire. It's not actual ice. It's not actual slingshots. It's a euphemism, right? So what does fire represent? Heat and passion, okay? So this is as the soul works through misdirected passions. The soul, got, the soul and the body, right, got very excited about things that perhaps it shouldn't have gotten excited about. Working through that passion is what we call purgatory of fire. Well, what happens if the soul in its um, reviewing its life or kind of recalling its experiences? What happens if the soul realizes that it was a little bit apathetic and disengaged from what it should have been engaged with? Well, that's what we call Gehenim Sheleg, 
purgatory of ice. You were, not you, but one was too cold to what one should have been passionate about. So we have the experience of misguided passion. At the same time, we have the experience of misguided apathy or disinterest. We should have been more interested, but we weren't. We didn't care. I, what were we thinking? How could we have not cared? Yeah, that's the Gehenim of fire, of, of, of ice. So fire, ice. The purgatory of the grave is the reckoning of misdirected pleasure. What happens in the grave? The body, without getting too graphic, the body um, decays and disintegrates. And on a physical level, again, without getting too detailed, Trying to think how to say this. Um, look, the body decays. So how long does it take? Depends on the body, right? There's either more or less. So that's, that's the reality. And so as the soul is experiencing on the other side in that place of truth, kind of recalling what it's done, misdirected pleasure Pleasure, so fire is passion, and flesh, right, is flesh, is, uh, is, is, is pleasure. So we have passion and pleasure. The pleasure is, uh, yeah, that, that represents the purgatory of the grave. And what about the slingshot? The slingshot is, it says, again, it's all metaphorical, it's all euphemistic, that the, the soul is shot from one end of the world to the other in a slingshot. Imagine like a big slingshot and the soul is being slung back and forth. Don't worry, it's not actually happening like that as it, as it sounds. The soul doesn't have physical mass to be, to be slung. That's not a thing. What, is it, what does a slingshot mean? It means the soul working through the ambivalence that it had, the indecisiveness that it had, the back and forth, right? Yeah, Mark is saying, more flesh, more worms. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, what I was trying to say before. Yeah, thank you. More flesh, more worms. That's kind of what I meant. So, yeah, that's Chibat HaKever. So we have misdirected passion is fire. Misdirected apathy is ice. Misdirected pleasure is Chibat HaKever, the protector of the grave. And misdirected um, uh, ambivalence, or not misdirected, but ambivalence, where you were kind of waffling. Like a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Right? I like this, but I also like that. Back and forth between what's right and wrong. Holy and unholy. That back and forth. You know, let me hedge my bets this way and that way. That experience. One for me, one for you. Right? A little for me, God. A little for, a little for me. A little for you, God. Right? That, that whole back and forth. The dance sitting on the fence. Right? That's uh, the slingshot. So that reconciles that. Look, in, in, if, just think on a, on a human level. You can think of times, perhaps, in your life when you, you know, you were excited about something you should have been excited about. When you, sh- you could think about when you weren't excited about something that you should have been. You think about something where you were having a, a, a pleasure experience that you shouldn't have had. And you can also think about time where you were going back and forth on something that should have been more clear-cut. These are various experiences that the soul experiences on earth. And in going through its cathartic, um, what do they call it when you get back like from war and they, oh, debriefing. And this debriefing, 
It's good. It, it, it could elicit some pain. But it's not for the sake of pain. And, and if there's one thing that I want to emphasize in this section on Gehenim, before we move on to, to, to paradise, we're only leaving ourselves a few minutes for paradise. We'll make, don't worry, we'll make it good. Um, the one thing that I, want to make, that I want to emphasize is there's no punishment here. There's no punishment. There's no um, you know, antagonizing of the soul. It's just an honest accounting of who and what the soul is and the soul working through itself and its, its past in order to get to a better place. So, um, is it, is it like a devil with a pitchfork and, 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 and trying to harm or punish? There's no punishment. There's no punishment. It's a reconciliation. That's it. That's all it is. Uh, Mark is asking, what, how does a godly soul need any cleansing or purging? Okay. You know, if you walk into a perfume shop and you walk out, you're going to smell like perfume. If you walk into a fish store, you know what I mean, like a fish, like a, yeah, and you walk out, you might smell like fish, like dead fish. Yeah, that's the way it is. So how could the soul, which is pure, have all this stuff? Because it was in a body for 120 years. And it, it collected. By the way, all of this is only for the lower, we don't have time to get into this tonight. All for the lower dimensions of the soul, not the higher levels. The five dimensions of the soul, we're talking now about the lower dimensions of the soul that have this kind of um, you know, negative or this residue that it needs to be cleansed. All right, we have to move past it because we have still a few things to talk about. So let's talk about now paradise. Oh, hold on, hold on. Before I do that, let me quickly, quickly, quickly share with you the screen. Um, We're skipping text six, text seven. Oh, yeah, timeline. Text eight, timeline. How long does this process take? The Mishnah says, again, this is not Kabbalah, it's not philosophy, Jewish law. Mishnah says... The wicked are judged in Gehenna, and it's not really self-judged, in Gehenna for a maximum of 12 months. Maximum of 12 months. So the whole process takes maximum of 12 months of purging. The worst of the worst, so to speak, only 12 months. It's not a final destination. It's not, uh, you're going to burn for eternity. There's not, not, no eternity, no eternity business. Max 12 months. It's not a punishment. It's a purging. Okay, by the way, this is why, and I mentioned this to somebody via email this past week, this is why we say Kaddish for a loved one for 11 months, not 12 months. Kaddish helps the soul in this process, which if we have time, we'll talk about how it helps. The Kaddish is the prayer, the mourner's prayer, the, mourner, uh, yeah, the mourner's prayer that's recited in the memory of a loved one. We only do it 11 months. Because who wants to assume about a loved one that they need the full 12 months? <laughs> they need the full workup, right? We don't want to assume the worst of our loved one to say, well, they probably needed the full 12 months. Let's give them the whole, the full, uh, the full 12 month Kaddish. No, 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 no. We always go one month under that. We always go 11 months. If I'm not mistaken, we do 11 months in a day. So it's into the 12 month and that's it. That's it. And then we, and then we, we, and then the next time we do it on the arts at the anniversary, just to help the soul continue to elevate, which we'll talk about soon. Now, we gotta, we got to move on to paradise. So what's paradise? Paradise is so easy to explain. Because what is paradise? You're on vacation, and you're loving it. But it's more than, it's not vacation. You're home. You're home, and you're in a good place. You're with the ones that you love. You're good. You're at peace with yourself. You're at peace with your environment. 
you're at peace with your significant other, everything's good. It's, it's geschmack. That means uh, pleasurable in Yiddish, right? It's, it's, it's taste, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. It's, it's, it's gewaldic, it's fantastic. You're, you're, you're okay, you're good with you, you're good with your space, and you're good with the one who's there. That's what the soul experiences after the, not 12 months, 11 months, right, of, or however long it takes to get, to get rid of whatever it needs to get rid of, to work past it. Once it works past it, now you have a soul, a piece of God, in a divine space. What could get any better than that? The soul basking in light, it's great. Think of a Shabbat dinner with family and friends. You're at home. It's beautiful. It's lovely. It's delicious. I don't mean the food. I mean, it's, it's just, it's beautiful. It, it, it feels amazing. It's like, uh, it's like Gan Eden. It's like paradise. That's what we're talking about. You're at home with yourself, with your space, with your God. Everything is good. No baggage. Everything's fine. Everything's happy. That's what paradise is. See, paradise is very easy to explain. When you explain what, the, what Gehenim is, it's like being in that space and being like, oh, I can't even enjoy it. What have I done? Right? Okay. When you work past that, now you enjoy it. Reincarnation. I got a few questions about reincarnation tonight. The good news is, less than three next week, we talk about reincarnation. So don't worry. If you're wondering, well, hold up. Does the soul have to check out of paradise? Because it's got to come back into the body? Just you wait and see. And if you think you know what reincarnation is, because you read some books on reincarnation, Trust me, you ain't seen nothing yet until you understand the Jewish perspective of reincarnation. It will change everything. So again, quickly with heaven. Let's do heaven quickly. Not the experience, but the, uh, the text about heaven. Take a look very quickly at text number 10. Ramban, Nachmanides, for 12 months after death, the power of the body still exists and the soul is inclined to the body's knowledge and, deal, and deeds with physical images as it was accustomed to during physical life. Yeah, all right. After 12 months, it transcends the ideas of the physical realm, wears a cloak of royalty and is coronated with the crown of Gan Eden paradise. In other words, it works through 12 months or max 12 months and now it enjoys. Gan Eden is the gate to heaven where one experiences the light of life, and through the comprehension of the soul of that place, it ascends to become attached to a higher supernal realm and delights of spiritual understanding. Ramba, Maimonides, text 11. Just as a blind man cannot comprehend color and, a de- and the deaf cannot comprehend sound, so too the body, listen to this, the body cannot comprehend the lights of the soul. In the physical world, we cannot know the spiritual world. We can only come to know it through much inquiry. Text 12, in the time to come, our souls will understand the knowledge of the Creator. Blessed be He, as the supernal bodies comprehend Him. In other words, the soul will understand like the angels. The pleasure derived from this is not split into parts and cannot be told, nor can any parable be found to explain this delight. Let me tell you what he's saying, in essence. He's talk- Imagine you have uh, an old television. Remember those old televisions? Like the really big ones, Right? The standard definition, not even standard definition, like really blurry, like TV in the 70s. Just colors everywhere, just like total mush. And then you contrast that with high definition TV. Imagine like NFL football where you can see like shot in high def 
4K, 8K, do I hear 12K? Doesn't matter, we're not talking about marathons here. We're talking about like the definition of the image where you can see every crease and every bead of sweat and every like pore, yeah? Okay, that jump from low definition or standard definition to high definition is the type of pleasure jump we're talking about. If you think you know what's good or what feels good, you have, you, as I'm just telling what my mind says, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because if you think, if you think, I always go to sushi. It's a thing. If you think sushi is good, ho, 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 just wait to Gan Eden. Gan Eden, that's paradise in Hebrew, right? Heaven. Gan Eden blows everything out of the water. If you think champagne, caviar, steak, sushi, right? Whatever is your, your thing, chocolate, who knows? If you think that's good, just wait to the soul's experience in paradise. That is true pleasure. That is true pleasure, the greatest pleasure, the pleasure of connection, oneness, being at home, just the light, high definition. Rambam Maimani says, you cannot understand it through the lens of the body. No body, listen, the body has its own definition of pleasure. What Rambam is saying is that is nothing compared to the soul's pleasure. That's it. How can we understand it? We can't because we're right now because you and I were filtering through a body. So everything is filtered through the senses of a body. So like, oh, it's probably like if I take the best meal I've ever had, if I bump it up a few notches, there you go. No, it's way beyond. But we have no frame of reference. So we have to go like that. We have to scale it up. But we're starting from a flawed place of perception. But it is what it is. The point is. It's, it's, it's the greatest pleasure possible, the pleasure of connection with self, connection with the space of that light, and the connection with its creator. The soul is free. It's finally free to bask in its greatest truth, greatest reality, greatest space of peace. So here's the big idea. And this comes back to what was mentioned before. And here's the big idea. Where is paradise created? Paradise is created essentially here on earth because the soul, the extent to which the soul can appreciate all that or doesn't appreciate all that and needs some work to appreciate that, all of that is influenced directly by how the soul, how we, forget the soul, body and soul, how we live our lives. So the more we live our lives in a soulful way, in a meaningful way, in a purpose-driven way, in a divine way, the more we do mitzvot, the more we do good deeds, the more our soul is ready to enjoy. It's high definition out of the box. The more we live for other things, with other things, the more work it's going to take to get there. The more, the more hiccups, the more, uh, the more steps along the way. So here's a beautiful idea. We create, we kind of form our path right here on earth. Everything is created here on earth, but we, 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 we're creating the path but we don't experience it. In the future, in the afterlife, that's when we experience the path, but we can no longer create it. I mean, we can try to, you know, we go through that purgatory experience and we purge the negative, but we can't create it then, we just experience it then. The soul, the uh, Judaism tells us, the soul is constantly ascending. Every day, every moment, it constantly goes up. It's like a feedback loop. It, 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 it's present, it enjoys, and because it enjoys, it's open, it's more open, and it senses more. It's a feedback loop. It experiences more and more and more of 
the, the, the divine pleasure, the divine light, so to speak. And that's great. But there are certain jumps. It's a gradual ascent. The soul is always going up. But there, there are bumps. One bump is on the yard site, on the anniversary of, of the passing of, uh, of a loved one, of, 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 of somebody. On the anniversary of their passing, we said about death. Death is the culmination of their life's efforts. So on the anniversary of that, their soul is lifted up even higher. Another way to lift up a soul is by doing something positive in that soul's memory here on earth. So you and I can benefit, radically benefit, a soul that has left this earth by having the intention to do something positive in the memory and in the, in the spirit or, or um, in the memory, in the honor of, of that loved one, of, of that soul. Because that attributes all the goodness and all the light that we create here on earth to that soul who inspired us. And so what, I, what I'd like to do is we'll do one more quick thing where I'm going to share um, suggested... No, here we go. Text 14. The great Rashba. The great commentary and halachist, Talmudic commentary and halachic authority. So the Rashba writes, medieval sage, he writes this. When a child is righteous and serves God, it is seemingly on account of the parent that the child is doing so. It is the parent, after all, who brought this righteous individual into the world. It is therefore appropriate that a child can accrue merits on behalf of a deceased parent. However, the charity or prayers of anyone on behalf of a departed person are helpful for the soul of the deceased. This is why it is Jewish custom to give charity and perform other actions to bring comfort and pleasure to the soul. So what he says is two things. Number one, a child for a parent, very, very beneficial for the soul. Lifts up the soul. It really lifts up the soul much higher. Second, in addition to a child on behalf of a parent, we also have anyone giving charity or saying prayers like Kaddish on behalf of anyone, not necessarily a relative. So a child doing any mitzvah, any good deed, goes automatically to the parent. Anyone else, it depends on the intention. If it's done on behalf of the departed person, then it helps. Does that make sense what I'm saying? A child by default, any goodness, we automatically give the credit to the parent because where else did they get it from? And they brought, but for someone else that's not a relative, right? So if you, if you, as long as you have the intention that I'm doing this in the honor of so-and-so, then it's, uh, that's where the credit goes. Here are some suggested mitzvot on a practical level to benefit the souls of departed loved ones. Number one, tzedakah, charity. Number two, yizkar services, which also come with charity. Number three, Torah study. Number four, financial support to Torah students and scholars. Five, sponsor a Torah class. So again, if you're supporting Torah, that's what helps. Um, sponsor donate books to a Jewish library. Write or donate a Torah scroll in the deceased honor. Any mitzvah done in the merit of the deceased is beneficial for the soul. So the bottom line is any mitzvah is good, especially beneficial or good deeds whose observance the deceased encouraged in his or her will or those that the deceased excelled in. So things specific to that person help in a, in a powerful way. Let's talk about yard site customs on a very practical level. On the, the yard site means the anniversary. Yard site means literally the year. Yar is a year. Site means time. So the year time, in other words, the, the annual anniversary of the passing, there are certain customs. Number one, light a 24-hour yard site candle. Number two, recite the Kaddish during the day's prayers. Number three, visit the grave site and recite chapters of Psalms. Number four, donate to charity. Number five, study Torah. 
especially Mishnah. Number six, receive, get called to the Torah prior, the Shabbat prior to the yard site. Number seven, it was once a widespread custom to fast on the day of the yard site. Today, many have the custom to sponsor a Kiddush in the congregation, which is like the, the after services uh, meal. And the blessings recited there over the food serve as a merit for the soul. Number, number eight, finally, convene a gathering of relatives and friends to commemorate the deceased and speak about and learn from the deceased good deeds. Finally, and this will take us to the end of the class, the Kaddish. We're not going to read the Kaddish inside. You have it in your handouts. You can read it or in any prayer book you can read the Kaddish. This is the Kaddish from the Chabad Siddur, at least. And basically the, extent, the Kaddish talks about praising God. Exalted and hallowed be His great name. It talks, it's, it's a prayer that praises God. So how does it help the deceased? So here's the short idea. The short idea is that the soul that's left this world can no longer create light in this world. And we know that a lot of light is, is created in this world. But the soul that's passed on can no longer have that effect. But you know who can? Those who are still behind. Family or other loved ones, friends, etc. So when we say Kaddish and we say exalted and hallowed be God's, God's name and we basically praise God and we have the intention that we're doing so on behalf of the one who can no longer do so in this space. When we, in, in, in other words, when we transform the darkness of this world, at least a little bit of it, into, into light by bringing God into the conversation and we do so in the merit of someone who, who has passed on, and the merit of that Kaddish, of that public declaration, because we do it with a minion, with a quorum of ten, that public declaration of God's greatness is attributed to the one who passed away, like as if they are the ones that caused this new light to, uh, to shine in this world. And in doing so, that greatly benefits the, uh, the deceased. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very important custom and tradition to recite the Kaddish for the 11 months and a day. It's a tremendous custom and tradition to recite the Kaddish on the yard site, the anniversary. Um, there are people who will say, if, if, if you have a yard site or you know someone who has a yard site and can't say the Kaddish, there are people who will do that in honor of the, of the deceased. Um, if you need more information about that, I'm happy to share. You can message, message me or call me or email me privately and I can share with you um, some ways to go about that. But it's a, it's a way to benefit, greatly benefit the soul. So I want to wrap up today's discussion and, and, and hopefully... Um, uh, make sure that everyone walks away with, uh, with what, what I was intending to, uh, you to walk away with. So in this class, we primarily explored the experience of heaven and hell and what that actually is. We explained that we don't have hell in Judaism, but rather Gehinnom, which is more tra translated more accurately as purgatory. We explained that Gehinnom purgatory is the process that cleanses the soul. It's that self-awareness process that cleanses the soul, purges it of its negativity, and enables it, or ne not negativity, but negative you know, attachment, and enables it to reach its in intended destination, which is Gan Eden, which is paradise. We describe paradise very simply as the intimate oneness of soul with God. It's that oneness. It's your home, and you're with the one that you love, and that's you're with family. You're with mishpacha. That's it. doesn't get any better than that. You're with your beloved. And of course, we discussed how our actions here on earth radically create and affect our experience of the afterlife. When, when our souls enter that space, 
what will it feel? Pleasure or regret? Will it be proud in that light? Or will it want to hide in that light? Will it feel shame? What we do here on earth defines that and determines that. So like I said last week, we don't live this life to get to the next life. That's not why we're here. We live life because we, we live this life with a body because we were sent here on a mission from God to make this world a better place. When we do so, the fringe benefit is that our souls are proud and our souls can bask in, in the nachas, in that pleasure, in, in the pleasure of, of paradise. So, as I said last week with the story of Diamond Island, let's not run after that fish. Let's not run after the material pleasures. Let's remember why we're here. We're here to collect diamonds. And if we focus on our mission, then when it's done, we'll be able to stand proudly and say, yeah, we were in a challenging environment. And yeah, it, it wasn't always easy. But you know what? We did a good job. And we try to get all the opportunities we could and we try to stay away from all the, the pitfalls along the way. And, and we're proud. And we're home. So that's the goal. Not to get home but to navigate this in a healthy way and to make a difference right here because at the end of the day, this is where it's at, especially in light of what we're going to talk about in Lesson 4, which is the resurrection of the dead. But that's in two weeks. So that's it for today. Next week, before you go, next week, let me just explain what we're doing. It's all about reincarnation. And the core idea we're going to explore is, number one, well, a few things. Does Judaism believe in reincarnation? Is that just an Eastern belief? Do we believe that the soul just goes into different bodies, recycled souls? That, sorry, that the soul is recycled? It's in body, body A. That's gone. All right, goes into body B, C, D. How does that? And if that's the case, then as was asked tonight, well, what happens with uh, paradise? I, I, was, I was just enjoying this thing. I had the TV on. It was high definition. It was just getting good. And now I, got it, I get called back. What's going on here? So all of this will be discussed next week in our class on reincarnation. Don't miss this because if you miss it, you're going to have to do it again. You see what I did there? I, I'm happy that you put up with me like this because, you know, it's not, it's not always easy. But I feel the love. I feel the love and I hope you feel, you feel it as well from my side as well. I value the time that we have together. Um, I don't mean, I'm not sounding like morbid. I, I mean like the time that we have here on Tuesday nights together. Um, and thank you, for, thank you for, uh, for taking this journey with me and exploring what Judaism says about heaven and hell and about the afterlife in general. It's not what it's cracked up to be. I also, you know, I, you know it's, it's, it's funny, you know, I, I'm saying goodbye without saying goodbye because it's hard to say goodbye because I like, I like this. But one more thing that I need to share is I believe that a lot of misconceptions came into Judaism about heaven and hell as Jews were amongst others in other countries. And I believe that we have also a notion of Gan Eden and Gehenna, the Hebrew versions of paradise and purgatory, uh, but being around others, kind of, you know, it, 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 like I said about the, you know, you walk into a perfume shop and you're going to walk out smelling a perfume. You end up taking on some of the flavor of your environment. And I think that's where some of the misconceptions came in. If you really go back to the sources from the Mishnah, from the Talmud, 
to Maimonides, to Kabbalah, to everywhere you go. It's very clear the Jewish idea. All right, hope this helped. Hope this made sense. If you have any questions, I'll be here for the next few minutes. I'm not planning on going anywhere. So you can stay around with me to ask, or you can always ask me offline. I'm available by email, text, etc. All right, feel free to frag, which means to ask. And those that have to go, Laila Tov, have a good night.